0: We just heard a prayer from Colossians chapter 1 at the end of worship. We're going to be starting a new series in the book of Colossians. It's going to take us through the next several months. It's a little bit open-ended at this point. I'm not sure how fast we're going to work our way through it. I want to, I want to kind of chart out where we're going, but I want to give us time to kind of stop and pause where it seems like there's, there's more wealth for us to mine. But we're going to be starting this morning in the book of Colossians. The title of the series is The Hope of Glory. So you see the logo there, again, thanks to Nick Greenley. But Colossians, The Hope of Glory is our new series. Now, if you think kind of in your mind, what are the most popular books or your favorite books, favorite letters that the Apostle Paul wrote? Kind of get that mental list going. Colossians probably isn't at the top of the list. I think in all honesty it's it's one of Paul's strangely more obscure letters. You have books like Romans, you know, this this theological tour de force, just filled and, and packed with, with theology and this this long description of what redemption looks like. And you got Philippians, Philippians is a favorite, right? Just dripping with just rejoicing and this incredible perspective of contentment in Christ, and everything's lost compared, you know, we love Philippians. You think of Galatians. Luther's lightning bolt epistle. It's just a charge of of gospel truth every time you open it. Even Ephesians, a book that's written about the same time as Colossians. It's written from the same location. Paul wrote both Ephesians and Colossians during his Roman imprisonment, probably around 62 AD. So it's in the same prison cell he's penning his letter. If you read them, there's actually similar themes going on in both of them. But I think Ephesians is probably the more familiar letter. People are probably more aware of the landscape of Ephesians. Well, why is that? Why is Colossians a little bit overlooked? Well, I think there are a couple reasons that we can see for that. The first is just the city that it's written to. I think even in the course of the history of the church, the fact that this letter is written to this group of Christians, these Colossians who live in the Roman city of Colossae, probably speaks to why it's a little bit lesser known. Colossae is probably the least important, least impressive city that Paul wrote a letter to. So this is a far cry from these metropolitan cities like Rome and Corinth, you know, just bursting with energy and they're they're large and there's people and there's culture. In that way it's probably a smaller church as well. It's less influential in the early church. It's a church that sits, we've got a map here we can pull up, in modern day Asia where modern-day Turkey is. It'd be called Asia Minor then. You see the little blow-up there. It's by the city of Laodicea. So in Laodicea and Hierapolis and Colossae, there were churches. So it's actually a little church in a little kind of -of out-of-the-way city, but it's also surrounded and very close, just 10 miles down the road, to a couple other Christian congregations. It's about 120 miles to the east of Ephesus, its better-known cousin. Now, Several centuries earlier, prior to Paul writing the letter, this city was a thriving industrial place. It was on the crossroads of two major trade routes. There's a major east-west road that went from Ephesus all the way through Laodicea and Colossae, all the way to Sardis. And then there was a north-south route that went as well. And it was known for its textile industry. So it was actually really known for this this particular kind of wool they would make with a red dye. And it was so famous, it was known as Colossian wool. So you would see this red cloth, and it was known even in Paul's day as Colossian wool. But what happened was, the trade route got shifted, and somehow, whether it was political maneuvering or what, a new road was built that went through Laodicea. And so Laodicea became more prominent, and Colossae diminished. And so what you're seeing here is a letter that's written to a city whose glory days are in the rearview mirror. It's a city on the decline. So you can maybe think of it a little bit, it's not like one of those rust belt cities of western Pennsylvania or Ohio. like A Youngstown or a Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. There's sort of the echoes of its, of its former grandeur, but it's not that place anymore. Those are just sort of some unimpressive facts about this city. But don't let that fool you. This letter is a diamond in the rough. This letter is filled with treasure. And to be fair, all letters, all books of the Bible are filled with treasure for us to mine. But Colossians is unique. Here's what sets Colossians apart. What makes it a unique fountain of refreshment for us. Colossians, simply put, is probably the most Christ- centered letter of all of Paul's letters. Now let that soak in for a moment. This is Paul who tells the church in Corinth, all I want to be known for is Christ and Him crucified. That's what I want to define my ministry to you. This is Paul who celebrates Jesus in ways no one else does. And in all of Paul's letters, the letter of Colossians is where we see Christ most obviously present all of scripture is pointing to Christ but in colossians we see it most objectively most most clearly so it's going to be a sweet time this is a letter that's dripping with the honey of the gospel and so as we start this series i hope there's anticipation there are riches in store for us in this brief letter Paul holds up the jewel of Christ and just spends four chapters turning it slowly and carefully so we see each facet for its unique brilliance. It's an awesome opportunity. We're going to see the cosmic Christ. Christ is Lord over all creations. We'll see the preeminent Christ the one who has always existed, the image of the invisible God. will see Christ as the object of our faith. We'll see Christ as the head of the universal church. We'll see Christ as the great reconciler of all things. And that's just a tiny sampling of all the ways Paul will show us Christ in this letter. To put it succinctly, Paul labors hard to display for us the incalculable worth of the riches of the glory of this mystery. As he puts it in Colossians: 127, "Christ in you, Christ in all of us, the hope of glory." That's what's in store for us. So we're going to take our time. We're going to move slowly. We don't want to sprint through Colossians. We want to take this, this, this diamond up like it's the engagement ring, and the woman's had it for one day, and she can't help but look at it and keep gazing at it. And so we're gonna we're gonna slowly go through. We're not gonna sprint, we're gonna take up residence. Remember, we talked about Acts 2, just the previous series, that sense in which we see in verse 42, the early church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? They devoted themselves to it. Well, that's what we want to do in Colossians. So here's a practical way to do that, to take our last series, devoted, and carry it forward into our new series, The Hope of Glory. Spend time in Colossians. Here's my challenge to you. Twice a week, take a break from your normal devotions and turn your attention to Colossians. Maybe on Saturday night or Sunday morning, here's the first challenge. On Saturday night, Sunday morning, take up the book of Colossians and whatever chapter we find ourselves in as the series goes, read that chapter. Maybe you have five minutes. It really only takes about five minutes to read one of these chapters. So if it's just five minutes, take five minutes to read chapter one until we're all the way through chapter one, however many weeks that is, Saturday night or Sunday morning. And then another point during the week, maybe it's Tuesday or Wednesday, read through the entire book of Colossians in one setting. So sit down, pick up the book, and read it through front to back. Really probably won't take you more than 25 or 30 minutes. But if you do that, by the time we finish this series, you'll have read through this book, you'll have picked up the diamond of Christ. And you'll have studied it literally dozens of times. Here's a challenge for the the really hardy folk. Maybe take this letter, and over the course of the series, memorize it. Some of you are thinking, memorize it? (laughs) I struggle with like two or three verses. It can be done. I've seen it done. I've seen an individual at the end of a series on Hebrews stand up and recite the entire book of Hebrews about three times as long as the book of Colossians. So if you want to settle into the territory of Colossians, that's my challenge to you. Recite it. And, And here's a little carrot to dangle in front of you. Maybe this isn't a carrot for some of you. If you memorize it, and you're confident in your memorization, I'll invite you up our last Sunday in the series, to recite the book of Colossians. Now some of you think, I might memorize it, there's no way I'm letting them know I've done it, I'm not getting up in front. That's fine, but if, if you'd be willing to, I'd love to have you stand in front of us and recite for us the riches of this letter. All that to say, spend time in it. Don't just read it, contemplate it. Don't just skim through it, immerse yourself in it. Here's the promise Paul says you can experience. In Colossians 2.3, he says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So devote yourself to that as we spend our time contemplating the hope of glory. Having said all that, let's jump in. Colossians, we the first two verses this morning. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. God's holy word, may he write its truth upon our hearts. Let's bow bow our heads. Lord, we want to see and experience the treasures of all wisdom and knowledge that can be gained in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Lord, we ask that You would, the power of Your Spirit, as You promised to do, open up Your Word to us. Captivate our hearts. Let us gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. And let us begin even now this morning. Lord, fill our vision with the sight of the risen Christ. Change us, God. Transform us by what we see there. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we saw two brief verses where we're jumping in this morning we're going to see two basic points, really verse 1 and verse 2. The first thing we're going to see this morning is Paul's authority. The second thing we'll see is our identity in relationship to it. But first, Paul gives us a sense of his authority. Now, if we're honest about Colossians maybe being not the go-to book for most people when they think of their, their favorite Pauline epistle, if we're really honest and kind of carry that forward, how many of you can you sit down with one of Paul's letters You're opening up like, I'm going to spend the next couple months or the next few weeks reading the book of Galatians. And you kind of sit down in the first like 10 minutes. You just meditate on the first two verses. You come to Colossians and it's sort of, I haven't been here in a while. Oh, Paul, Paul, an apostle. People typically don't read the letter that way, right? We look at it and we think, Paul, an apostle. Well, I'm not an apostle. None of you are apostles. So what does that have to do with us? That can kind of be our inclination. Well, quite a bit, actually. Paul starts out this letter, and he's not just signing his name. He's actually introducing himself. He's introducing himself to this church. You see, Paul didn't plant this church. Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae. In fact, it's not just that he didn't plant it. He's never been there. They've never met him. So he's sending this letter with Timothy, to them, So they would receive it. It's really sort of his first introduction. So he's, he's stating who he is, and he's giving that to them. Now you kind of wonder, if he didn't plant it, if he's never been there, what's the relationship? Well, Paul's buddy, his co-worker Epaphras, is the one who started this church. So there was a period during Paul's third missionary journey where he spent three years in the city of Ephesus, planting the church in Ephesus and seeing it grow and, and take root and mature. And while he was there, Epaphras who is from Colossae, was in Ephesus. And he heard the gospel. And he was converted. And he went back with the good news to his hometown. And he proclaimed the gospel, and people were converted and saved, and a church took root there. So Paul didn't start this church. He's never been there. In chapter 2, he actually says, I can't wait to see you face to face, but even not having seen you face to face, I carry a burden for you. So he starts out here, Telling them his credentials. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, to be an apostle means you're an eyewitness. You can give eyewitness testimony to the fact that this Christ was risen. All the apostles saw the risen Christ. More than that, all the apostles were directly commissioned by Jesus. So you want to ask Pollock, like, well, how do you know you're called to ministry? Well, let me tell you about my calling to ministry. There's this guy, Jesus. And he laid me on my tail on the road to Damascus. You want to you talk about a story that's just overtly showing you God's sovereignty and salvation. It's the Damascus road where Paul is going along, persecuting the church. and Bam! The risen Christ confronts him. Blinds him. And then opens his heart to a new mission. Well, that's what's going on here. The apostles were called to preach the gospel. They're called to advance the gospel through church planting. So, so go into new areas and break new ground for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. And then they're called to pastor those churches. It's not like Paul just plants a church, goes on from there, and it's just out of sight, out of mind. He pastors them. He carries a burden for them. So he wants to shepherd them and to protect them, to bring them to maturity. And then Paul adds, I'm an apostle by the will of God. This is God's intention for my life, His claim upon my life. It's not just that God sovereignly saved Paul on the way to Damascus. God has sovereignly commissioned Paul to do just this, to write letters to these churches, to care for them, and to build them up, and to protect them. So by stating that his appointment is by the will of God, Paul's telling the Colossians that's the reason behind this letter. It's connected to a divine appointment and a divine calling. Paul is God's instrument. This is a weighty thing. Paul is God's instrument through which the foundations of the church are being laid. So why is that important? Why does Paul inform the Colossians of this? Why should we spend time today reminding ourselves what we already know about Paul? Well, it's important because Paul is establishing his authority. And not just a generic sense of authority, he's establishing the fact that he has unbound authority. He doesn't have authority just over churches he planted. His authority doesn't diminish when he dies. He's not like a president. When his term is up, it's like, oh, now you're just sort of this guy that goes around and gets paid a lot to do speeches, but you don't have any real chutzpah behind what you're doing. I don't even know if that's the correct application of chutzpah, but it seemed like it fit there. So we're going to throw a chutzpah in there. Paul's chutzpah doesn't diminish. He won't get replaced. There's not going to be teachers who come along later and then supersede Paul. There's not going to be people that come along later and then say, well, Paul was wrong, we're more right. That's what Paul is establishing here. For the Colossians, receiving this letter from Paul, when they get that letter, it's the same thing as if Paul is physically there with them, instructing them. It's more than that. We just talked about this last month in the Devoted series. Because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, Paul's words are God's words. So these people have a sense that the risen Christ is addressing them by these men hand-picked for the task. One of the things we'll see as we go through Colossians later in chapter 1 is this this really developed Christology. When Paul talks about Jesus in the letter to Colossians, we see this really theologically rich description of who He is. And one of the things he says in chapter 1 is he describes the cosmic Christ. The Christ who reigns over all, who rules over all, who is preeminent over all. The Christ who holds all things together by the word of His power. He's cosmic. He's unbound. His power knows no limits. Well, if that's who Christ is, and Paul is his apostle, consider the implications. One of the points of that is that Paul has a cosmic apostleship. As far as Christ's authority extends, that's how far Paul's authority extends. Now, that's important when we think about Colossae. Remember, we talked about it's on a crossroads, it's major east-west roads. You kind of think of it as like the I-70 of Asia Minor. So it's on this major interstate we'll see as the letter goes on that here's this young church on on this major interstate, so it's this this crossroads of ideas and cultures flowing back and forth, and they start to get swayed by false teaching. As we'll go through the letter, we'll see and sense there's this this syncretistic tone. It's just a way of saying they're starting to blend their beliefs with the worldviews around them. So it's on this, this major trade route, and World views come flying through and different people come flying through and they start picking up pieces of their beliefs and their ideas and kind of trying to blend them into Christianity. Here's the essence of what that means. There are all sorts of seductive voices competing for the hearts of the Colossians. There are any number of gods in this city available to worship to mix with Christ. In this melting pot, who's to say Paul is totally right? Who's to say Jesus is the exclusive source of reconciliation? Who's to say? Just this week, there was a debate online. You could sign up on it, and there was only a limited number of people who could get on. By limited, I mean pretty large limit. Over a million people tuned in for this debate between a prominent scientist, an atheist, and a prominent Christian. And they tuned in and they watched it. And this debate went back and forth. And the whole thing, as you began to watch it, you realized, centered on the issue of authority. And whenever the Christian who was taking part in the debate brought the Bible to bear, as he should do in a debate, because it's God's authority, whenever he would bring it to bear, the atheists would just turn right around and disparage it. Just almost mock him. Well, according to him and his 3,000-year-old book translated into English and his interpretation of that book, that 3,000-year-old book, time and again. The implication was very clear. What Paul wrote, what Luke wrote, what Moses wrote, according to this man, had no bearing. Had zero relevance for how we understand the world. Which is really just another way of saying divine revelation is nonsensical. At one point, he even went so far as to call the idea of the authority of Scripture sort of like calling magic authoritative. That's what was going on. In this debate? Well, like the Colossians, we face a crossroads of authority. We are bombarded by voices, probably even more so than they are. They're kind of limited to the people that come through their city. Through the advent of television and the World Wide Web, it just flies into our homes. Voices sometimes. Very imperceptibly chipping away at the authority of God's Word. You think of a, a movie plot. And then they pull you into the plot. and they're, you know, they're, they're, If it's done well and the script is good and the acting is good, you feel a connection with the characters. And by the end of the movie, you find yourself cheering for fornication. Hoping that the adultery will succeed you ever caught yourself doing that? The imperceptibly soft voices pushing back on the authority of God's Word. Sometimes the voices are just blatant, right in your face. If you went on to Google this week, what did you see? The colors of the letters look like a rainbow. And then there's a little description underneath. Google demanding the the acceptability of homosexuality. There are soft, seductive voices. And there are loud, coercive, forceful ones. Different volumes, but they're humming the same tune. Paul has no authority here. He lived 2,000 years ago. What does what he think, thought, matter for today? What does Paul know about modern sexuality? When we go through this letter, he talks about sexual immorality and impurity. What does Paul know about that? We're modern people. These are voices looking and saying, what does Paul know about marriage and divorce? What does Paul know about money? What does Paul know about manhood and womanhood? About who goes to heaven? What does Paul know about autonomous human reason? We live after the Enlightenment after all. Which, if we're honest, is to recognize that like the Colossians, we're hearing voices that say, God has no authority here. Unless, of course, it's a God crafted in our own image, with our own tailor-made, conveniently self-styled versions of morality. So Paul starts out. Make no mistake, this letter is written by an apostle of Christ Jesus. By the will of God. And as long as Christ reigns, for as far as Christ reigns, that's how long and how far Paul's words remain a right reading of reality. A true interpretation of God, of us, and of the world. That's Paul's authority at the beginning of this letter. And then he jumps right into the identity of his audience and in addressing them he addresses our identity because remember his authority extends it knows no bounds of time so he's addressing us as well he says this in verse two to the saints the faithful brothers in christ at colossi so first he says your identity people receiving this letter believers is you are saints now if you hear that word pops into your mind is maybe a picture of like medieval dudes with halos and kind of like really somber looking and like Kind of like made like retrogram on Instagram where it's like they fade the colors. I kind of picture like little like saint trading cards. I don't know why that pops in my head, but that's kind of what you think when you hear the word saints, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's talking not talking about pious medieval people. He's actually not talking about purity at all. He's talking about who we are. We're saints. We're called out ones. We're we're set apart ones the formation of God's people in the Exodus. Moses envisioned this idea in, in Exodus nineteen six, He said, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's word to Israel as they're setting out is this. You will be my set-apart ones. You will be my saints. You will be my possession. Right from the start, Paul reminds the Colossians and us We no longer belong to ourselves. We've been made holy to God through Christ. We've been made His possession, His people, His nation, His body. That's the first thing He tells us about our identity. As Paul puts it later in chapter 1, he says this, starting in verse 12, God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints... In light, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. That's what it means to be set apart. So what does it look like to be transferred to that kingdom? Well, Paul says, I'm writing to the saints, these faithful brothers who are in Christ, the second marker of our identity. We touched on this a few weeks ago. Just kind of skim the surface of this phrase in Paul's letters. We are in Christ. In other words, we have union with Jesus. To take it further, we belong to Him. There's a transfer. There's a transfer of like a spiritual geography. You used to belong to this world, And now you belong to God. You used to to belong to the kingdom of darkness. Now your spiritual geography is you belong to the kingdom of the risen king. That's where your citizenship is. Instead of being in Adam, we have a new head, Jesus Christ, and a new future. We're no longer under the curse. In our new spiritual geography, we're co-heirs with the firstborn of creation. Think of it this way. When somebody says, I'm from the South, you kind of get connotations in your head of what that means, right? They probably say y'all a lot. So you always know when they're addressing a group of people in the plural. It's not you, it's y'all. They probably they probably go by two first names. They don't have middle names, they have two first names. What's your name? John David. Right? That's, that's the South. Classy if it's John David. Billy Bob if they're less than classy. That's what you think. Maybe you think of manners. They value manners, right? They value tradition. That's what the South kind of connotates. There's social graces. Maybe you watch too much Duck Dynasty and you think of the South and you just think of like lots of camouflage and huge beards and American flag bandanas. Maybe that's what you think of. If somebody says they're from New Jersey, you have connotations. What does that designation mean? Well, New Jersey, I'm thinking super thick accents, break it show they're, they're going to be loud, they're going to have opinions, they're going to tell you their opinions, and they're going to think your opinions are wrong. Depending on the part of New Jersey, if, it, if it's Newark, if you think their, their hair is like slicked back or something. You hear where someone's from, And you connotate ideas about them. Paul's point for us is wherever we are from geographically, we are most fundamentally in Christ. We live in Kansas City as those in Christ. Just as the mindset and the climate and the values and the history and the culture of a physical place shape who we are, Paul says, even more so, Christ shapes who we are. Our values shouldn't just reflect the Midwest. No, our values should reflect Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our worldview, our purpose, our relationships, our demeanor, our language, our witness should all shine forth evidence of where we belong. Where's Jill from? Oh, she's from... The kingdom of the sun. I can tell by, by the way she talks. I can tell by her demeanor. I can, I can tell by the way she interacts with people who are kind of rude to her. So we move around Kansas City as those in Christ. When we work... When we serve, when we drive, when we talk to neighbors, as we prioritize calendars, as we generally interact with the world and people around us, we do it in Christ. And so this means, of course, that our circumstances are powerless to change who we really are. Our circumstances don't change that. You can move from one geographical location to another. The hick from Tennessee moves to L.A. and starts to try and act like a person from L.A., Well, Paul is saying it doesn't matter where you live as one who is in Christ. You always bear those resemblances. So you can be out of favor with the boss. You can be in love. You can be prospering in business. You can be unemployed. You can be overwhelmed with responsibility. You can be overcome with grief. You can be beset by troubles and trials. You can be flourishing in friendships. You can feel suffering in rejection and loneliness. Yet in all those things, our spiritual condition, our identity, our citizenship remains unchanged. We are in Christ. Citizens of His kingdom and members of His body. And here's the cool thing. It's never by ourselves. You know that the word saint in the New Testament, the word that gets translated saint, never occurs in the singular. There's only actually one time it does, and that's where it says every saint. It's always referred to in the plural. When we think of ourselves being in Christ, Paul wants us to have this sense of corporate identity, of corporate fellowship, of being a community in the kingdom, and a priesthood, a people, a body, a church, a gathering. We are saints. We are in Christ. And then he concludes with this. He says, you are also in Colossae. We are also in Kansas City. Paul doesn't chop that off. He doesn't say, yes, these saints are in Christ and now they no longer live anywhere in this world. They kind of float above. Like, once you become a Christian, you can't see it. If you look really closely, you'll notice when they walk, They actually hover, like a couple millimeters above the ground. And so they can't actually be from anywhere, because they're from above. No, he says, you're in Christ, in Colossae. You still have a geographical identity. It's not obliterated in Jesus. Here's Paul's point. Our new identity in Christ doesn't mean we stop living with an awareness of our physical geography. In all those details of daily life where we live in Christ, we also seek to bring Christ to bear upon them. Paul isn't envisioning like this, this dual life, like this disjointed sort of living. Some of the time I live in Christ, and some of the time I live in Kansas City. Some of the time I live in Christ, and then I cross over into Olathe. That's not what he's envisioning. He's clearly saying, as he'll make clear later in the chapter, that the Christ who rules all the cosmos also claims all of our hearts. He claims all of our lives. When he says that, he's not saying, so because you are in Christ, because he has claimed all of you, you should really disengage from your neighborhood. You should really withdraw from relationships and opportunities around you. He's implying they overlap. Being in Christ and in Colossi, being in Christ and in Kansas City isn't a call to be disjointed, to kind of live this like schizophrenic life. It's reimagining how we think about the normal parts of life. So if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, okay, so he's talking about mission and like being missional, and I'm trying to think like, where do I fit this into my already packed schedule? Do I have time on Tuesday night to do that? No, Tuesday night is this. Do I have time Wednesday morning? No, Wednesday morning i got to be at work early for a meeting. I I get what he's saying, but I, I can't fit that in. If that's kind of how you're thinking and processing it, you're missing Paul's point. The vision isn't for going to work and then coming back home and being tired and then going to ministry at care group. The vision isn't coming and worshiping on a Sunday morning and going home Sunday afternoon, eating with the family, taking a nap, and then going to ministry at Forest Avenue. That's not what Paul saying at all. It's thinking, in Christ, I'm off to work by the will of God in the place that He's called me to minister. Called me to minister and to live a verbal testimony to the redemption of the Gospel. I'm going to live out the grace that I see in the Gospel. I'm going to live out that grace in the way I offer it to others as I'm at work. And I'm going to live out that grace as I interact with them and respond to them and receive from them things that might be less than gracious. I'm going to work in Christ, on mission, accomplishing my tasks in a distinctively Christ-like way. Bearing witness and proclaiming witness and it's that way with every sphere to be in Christ is to minister the grace of the gospel to bring Christ to bear upon my marriage to bring Christ to bear upon my parenting to bring Christ to bear upon my coworkers upon my neighbors upon my barista upon the Quick Trip clerk that you see a couple times every week if you're like me getting the hot dog they're really cheap it's 2 for 2.22 and you can get all the condiments you want and so i see that guy a couple times Interact with Him in a Christ-like manner. In all those places we live in Kansas City, as those who are in Christ, we exhibit it by our tone, by our patience, by our deference, by our meekness, by our compassion, by our boldness, by our servant-hearted nature, and by our holiness. Jeremiah 29. That famous verse in Jeremiah 29.11, right? For behold, the plans I have for you. We always rip that verse out of context. You know what happens before that verse? There's a vision given to the people living in exile. That behold, you got a hope in a future. The promises I have for you. That comes in the context of these Israelites, these people. God's people now living outside the promised land. Here's what Jeremiah says to them just before that. Verse 4 of 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have set you into exile and pray to the Lord on it, that city's behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You're in exile. You're not in the place you're supposed to be. This is not our kingdom. We're, we're living this disjointed, this disjointed life in and people look weird. They do their hair weird. They talk weird. They dress weird. They eat weird. Thus says the Lord. Build homes without windows so you never see them. Build doors with triple locks so they can't get inside. No. Live in that city. Dwell there. Act on behalf of its welfare. Pray for it. Seek its good. The culture isn't transformed. And we're called to do that by Christians retreating. We bemoan the morality and the direction our country is going, right? If you're going to bemoan it, you should probably be hoping that it would have better morals, right? Right? Well, a moral and just society isn't built by hiding. And the battle, this is important, isn't won through power plays. The battle's not won through seeking to dominate your opponents. That's not what, that's not what God says. Go to this city in exile and, and, and build pipe bombs and figure out ways that you can overthrow them and you can conquer that city. It's not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. It's won by seeking the welfare of our neighbors. By praying for the welfare of our city. By hoping and asking God to intervene for our nation. Because in its welfare, you will receive your welfare. It's not ultimately so that people look and think, this is important, We don't do this just so that people look and think like me. And then it's more comfortable to live in this society. Like right now, it's getting kind of uncomfortable because the society at large acts differently. They they think differently. And I kind of feel like a duck out of water. So I want to transform the society so that when I go out and walk around, people walk like me. They look like me. They talk like me. That's why I want to do this. That's the welfare of my city. No. No, it's not. It's so that redemption would take place so that people would look and act and talk and think like Jesus. That's our goal. Skip. Read it during worship. I think, it, I think it's a helpful image. Psalm 96. Before we even go there, we kind of think when we think in terms of this idea of, of living on mission, of recognizing the authority of God's Word, how it transforms our lives and changes us, And the calling of identity to live as saints, as those set apart. Paul does not diminish the call of holiness, the call to live distinctly. Live as saints, live in Christ, and live for the welfare of the city around you, right? And when we kind of struggle with that, I can think, boy, if it's not happening at Providence, we mustn't have the right programs. If it's not happening at Providence, I must not be motivating people in the right way. I must not have used the right illustration. You want to know why it doesn't happen? Because there's a broken idea of worship. We don't do that because we don't worship rightly. Living the way Paul is calling us to live happens when we think rightly and love rightly. Think again, Psalm 96, skip Reddit. Listen to the worship and listen to how it affects people's perspective of their neighbors and the world around them. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. It's all about worship. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods and the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth say among the nations, the Lord reigns. It's about worship. That's why we live that way with our neighbors. Not because we feel guilty. Not because we want to manipulate them. But because we are consumed by the glory of God's name. Because we've beheld the beauty of the risen Christ. And I can't help but tell others about it. Because I'm devoted to the Word, and I'm devoted to the fellowship, and so there are affections that are continually, throughout the week, stirred up in me. And those affections don't get turned off when I open the car at work. I open the car door and those affections are still there, and they're still brimming, and it's worship, and it, it flows out. And people encounter it. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit different than the other dad on the basketball team.
1: My kid's not getting enough
0: playing time. I've been tracking it, and this kid got four and a half minutes in the first half, and my kid only got four minutes and 15 seconds. Hey, man, I just want to encourage you. I know it's a hard deal <laughs> coaching these kids, and I, just, I appreciate you giving the time and, and sacrificing, and I just want you to know, like, I want to be here to support you. I appreciate you leading my son's team. Wow, interaction with a parent or one of my players that didn't leave me like just in knots in my gut in Christ in Kansas City. Hey boss, you know I just coming in for the year in review and I really I want you to know. I know it can probably be hard to sit down and give feedback. I know it's sometimes hard to receive it, and I just want you to know, like I've been praying in preparation for this meeting, and I want you to know I really value your input. And so I want you to just have a sense of freedom just in sharing with me the ways you think I can grow. I really want to grow. I really want to see our company flourish. And so I know that God has placed you in authority over me, and I respect you as my boss, and so I really value your input. Would you please just feel the freedom You know, I I want you to feel like you can speak into my life in the areas I need it. Unbeliever walks out of the meeting thinking, that was different. That was, that was appealing. Here's a way to think of it. Every day, everywhere, every member on mission in Christ and for Christ. Every day, everywhere, every member, on mission, in Christ, and for Christ. I think that's what Paul's preparing us for here in the letter of Colossians. And now we'll get to drink deeply of the image of Jesus Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Would you bow your heads?